You'll notice the Fox logo is stretched. They wouldn't let me use anamorphic on this because of the opticals. So I, I put the Fox anamorphic logo in there. Uh, John Davis had developed this script um, that was sort of the greatest human sort of Rocky meets alien, I guess, uh, was was their notion. And I thought, I don't know, I liked I liked the feeling that it was not that far from like King Kong or something like that. It was a pretty simple, straightforward. Um, you know, a bunch of guys go to an island and go deeper and deeper in, and Shazam, the thing they're they're chasing after, turns out to be a lot bigger than they thought, and they have to turn around and run away. <laughs> wow, I haven't seen this movie in a long time. <laughs> I'd forgotten about this stuff at the front end. This shot in the in the front, the uh, um, the spaceship arriving wasn't post production, but it was just one of those things that was always in the script, and it never showed up until about an hour before the movie was open. Uh, here we are. This is a sort of credit sequence that we made up in Puerto Vallarta. film was, was quite a long time. It was the beginning of my career. It was my first studio film. Terrifying in a lot of ways. Um, and a learning experience in a lot of other ways. It's funny, we had to do, it's one of the first early computer opticals we had to Arnold's cigar wasn't really lit in that early shot it wouldn't start or something but so we had to have the glow enhanced I remember and this is uh, Alan Silvestri's music it's very good it's very effective for this stuff I have to go back and call Alan. Cameraman was Don McAlpine, who was this was his first American feature as an Australian. I'd seen him do Breaker Morant, and I loved his, his naturalistic style. And he's wonderful for me because he was he treated me like you know a, a, a young second lieutenant, and he was the old sergeant who was protecting him. Uh, it was wonderful the way he, he kind of took care of me and, and guided me. And, uh, 
in some ways through this. 18 hours ago, we lost a chopper carrying a cabinet minister and his aide. Here we have old R.G. Armstrong. It's a wonderful old actor. He's, uh, he's clearly too old for this part. But uh, I put an outrageous amount of tan makeup on him and, and uh, we got away with it. But Lord, the man was probably in his 70s then. Some damn fool accused you of being the best. Carl Weathers got involved. I went looking for somebody to work with Arnold, to have an actor for him to work with, because he, um, particularly for an actor who's starting the way Arnold was at that time, what the best thing you can get him is a good actor to work against. Um, it'll improve their performance enormously. Um, so right from the beginning, I was campaigning um, to get to get a real pro in this in Carl Weathers' part. Uh, and I, I finally talked them into Carl because it was a budget consideration. They didn't really want to do it, but. Uh, but I pushed. What do we got to do? That cabinet minister is very important to us. It was great for Arnold, not just so that he had somebody to play against, but also he had he had a guy who was strong and athletic and straight and and somebody he respected, who also was a damn good actor. So you know, Arnold watched him like crazy, learned a lot from him. I think he liked working with him. General, my team always works alone. You know that. I'm afraid we all have our orders, Major. Once you reach your objective, Dylan will evaluate the situation and take charge. We shipped a bunch of helicopters down, a bunch, three of them, um, from the U.S. Uh, down to Puerto Vallarta. This stuff was originally planned, this whole, in red sequence, was originally planned as some sort of um, blue screen arrangement. And in fact, I think we even shot it that way, but it's so stiff when you work with a blue screen. It's just the technicians, and it drives the actors crazy, and you get completely a dead sequence. Um, so I said, come on, the hell with it. Let's just close the doors. And, uh, you know, and then they could actually play the scene. Um, I suppose it was also budget consideration. I think they were quite happy when I said, well, all right, let's do away with that dozen opticals. It, I mean, it, it was a consideration all the way through this movie about how we do the optical effects. Everything. 
This is Shane Black, as the writer. I cast him because, because uh, I wanted a writer on the set, and I just I loved his work. Um, and he's got a great wise ass manner. Shit out of my face! Bunch of slack jawed faggots around here. Jesse Ventura. I had no idea. I mean, I found out that the guy was a lot brighter than he pretended to be. And a lot more of a professional, but I, I, I was truly astonished <laughs> to find out that, you know, that he'd been nominated for governor of what is it, Minnesota? Minnesota. I think this was his first feature. It may have been his only feature. I don't know. You want to know how I really got hired? You want to know the real truth about how how this happens? My agent said, "Look, I want this job." I think you need to sign up with this particular lawyer. It's uh, Jake Bloom's law firm. Jake Bloom is a business lawyer. He looks like he looks like Pancho Villa. He's a, he's a wonderfully phlegmatic manner, and this looks looks like an old hippie. It's very bright, but his law firm also represented Arnold at the time. My agent was very astute. That 5% was what got me the job. <laughs> this, this stuff is day for night, and the shots of the people in the helicopter are um, blue screen, and it's uh, troublesome. It's a lot easier to do this sort of stuff now, but at the time, you would just be overwhelmed with the technicians. Um, and the technicians would overwhelm the actors. The whole movie was shot in Mexico, two places. Actually, all this stuff is... Uh, down in Palenque the second time we went down all this stuff here that actually looks like it's in the jungle now, now we're in Puerto Vallarta I can tell by all of the brown leaves they weren't able to hide the fact that the leaves turned brown. I just had to go and reshoot most of it in Palenque. The movie started with a big discussion at the beginning uh, about the location. And um, McAlpin and I pleaded to shoot it where there was some real jungle. Like, this stuff is all real jungle, and it was done in Palenque. 
and uh, all this stuff. Um, and McAlpine and, and I pleaded to shoot it there. But there was somebody involved in the production who it turned out later for corrupt reasons. Um, insisted that we do it in Puerto Vallarta. Um, said that it would just be wonderful there and he would make it green and wonderful and blah, 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 blah. Um, and, and because it was my first feature, I didn't have credibility enough to say, um, to tell him to go to hell. Um, I have never let somebody choose the location for me since. The production designer hadn't done any research about, had no idea that the trees lost their leaves, that the west coast of Central America is deciduous. Um, and I didn't know at the time to check stuff like that. I mean, I've since learned a whole lot about how much research you got to do on a location and weather and that sort of thing. Um, but he didn't know anything about it, so two weeks in or something, the leaves started dropping off the trees, and he stood there, like, wondering what the hell happened. Pick up the trail yet? Billy's on it. He'd see Cadillan. That's pretty sophisticated for a bunch of half-assed mountain boys. Major! I guess they're getting better equipped every day. There were 12 gorillas. In fact, the review of the, in the New York Times talks about how there's... Schwarzenegger is walking around in a jungle that looks like the woods of New Hampshire in, in November. Mean anything to you? Probably just another rebel patrol. They operate near all the time. So all these things we had to build like crazy. I mean, we just was constantly sticking leaves and branches and um, vines in front of the camera to give it the impression that there was jungle all over. Um, most of the time we got away with it, actually. But we keep intercutting like that. We're intercutting stuff that I shot in Palenque. Where there were real trees, this is real jungle stuff. All this is real. Same business. Gorilla's only two guys in the chopper, followed by men with American equipment. Do you remember Afghanistan? It was very difficult to maneuver in the jungle at all. We just didn't know how. We started with first day of shooting was the worst nightmare I've ever seen. They had 300 Mexican crew members from from Mexico City. Just crowds and crowds of people. And most of them had nothing to do and we didn't have any way of truly organizing or uh, communicating in what we were trying to do. So for the first week or so, there were about six of us who were making the movie. Um, and what we did was we negotiated with the, it's called the Sindicato, the, the old union down there, which has gotten much better since, but at the time it was filled with these old lifers, guys who'd made movies in the 30s, and they were like, oh. Um, and we got the union to send half of them home. <laughs> we had to pay them, but we sent them home. 
So we got it down to a reasonable number of people. I think we had about 100 crew people. Anyway, we got him to send most of these people away, and then we shipped in a bunch of Australians and seated them through the crew as sort of like the non-coms in a military unit. Um, and it worked. It got it so that there was no Mexican crew member who was more than two people away from um, somebody who worked for Don McAlpine, the cameraman. Um, and that became the the thread through the center of the of the movie that that uh, communicated information. And gradually, one by one, the, uh, the Mexican crew started joining the movie, and they'd like you know they'd get a real job as part of the movie and like be necessary, and and they there was some resentment from some of the old lifers who were still still there and we hadn't gotten rid of but they'd like gradually get proud of the fact that they were now part of the movie um and eventually we won them all over this was my first time actually dealing with well particularly was my first time dealing with a real old time union uh, as i said that the mexican union since have gotten much better but at the time it was just oh what a nightmare here is Sonny Landrum. In order to cast him, the insurance company insisted we have a bodyguard, not to protect Sonny, but to protect other people from Sonny. This giant, huge man, six feet, six inches tall, not Sonny, the bodyguard, who was assigned to follow Sonny 24 hours a day and always know where he was to keep Sonny from getting in a fight or hurting somebody. Ah, there's Painless. Uh, one of the trips at the beginning of this, when they hired me, is they sent me to the armorer. And I was looking around, and I'm like, well, how can I find some toys that are neat? And, and I saw this thing this gun it was supposed to be mounted on helicopters and uh, in order to make the thing move work in the movie we had to slow it down because the barrel went so fast you couldn't even see it you couldn't photograph it, it spun um, what he didn't know was that there was a hundred pounds of batteries standing behind the man when he when he ran it and, they, and all the ammunition he could carry amounted to six seconds worth of firing even at quarter speed shots it would bury you up to your ankles in in uh, copper shells or, or brass shells in the five second burst that, that he that a man could carry enough ammunition for because that was the whole issue about how much ammunition can the man carry on his back how many bullets can he carry and it turned out it was really only a five second burst which is ludicrous. What the fuck would he carry a thing like that for? That's nonsense. But that's a movie. Who knows? Who knows that he got reloaded? It was just the, the practical part was that 
I'm not sure how we mounted it the first time, because we were afraid that it would that it would buck loose on him. I think we mounted it. I hung it overhead from a chain uh, with some safety lines on it, because what we were afraid of was that it would spin back at him and it could um, blind him easily. I mean, even with safety glasses and everything, it just cut the hell out of him. I mean, like you know, there was who was it who got killed just from from a single blank going off well this thing if you got too close to the front of it because there were big shells there were it's 30 odd six shells or whatever that is whatever that size is it's bigger than a 22 i got in a lot of trouble for this shot it was uh with a crane and a remote camera and uh studio was all pissed off because it uh and it took like three hours to get the damn shot. <laughs> it was it was very hard to do those things in uh, in a jungle location. The uh, attack on the compound was, again, as I said, this was my first studio feature. Um, so the, the movie had been planned with a second unit to shoot the attack. And the stuff was all shot sort of stuntman style. With, uh, Static cameras. Yeah, this is that that same shot set up with setting up with a crane. Um, this stuff was all the second unit. I don't know. Worked maybe two or three weeks. Um, uh, and shooting explosions and guys falling into pads and. That sort of thing. I think the guy had done a, done a lot of the A team or something, and uh, I was probably not a good sport. I didn't really like this stuff. The style of it was just, I don't know, it was just different sort of cinema. Um, and you'll see all of, most of the stuff that I was shooting would, it's more than one shot hooked together or the camera moves somewhere or it's one image leading to another image. Uh, and the, the kind of traditional stunt style of shooting is just static cameras. You know, like this, you just saw it. it. You watch the guys get thrown out in the background and you rack focus to Dylan in the foreground. Here, you, somebody signals Arnold and you rack focus to Arnold. Now, this is second unit. Um, and you see it's... It's sort of 
I'm reluctant to say it. Yes, it's static shot after static shot. I made up this thing about the generator going across the... I should be careful. I'm sure loads of people will claim they did it. Um, but in order to break up the... It used to be, in the script, it was, I don't know, they just charging an attack or something like that. And um, Somewhere I saw this truck used as a generator. Showtime, kid. Now, these... The statics here, these things are all the second wave, all the explosions and stuff. They're all part of the second wave. This was all shot in the first two weeks. Now, no one was hurt on the film. One stunt double for a while later on. Ah, there's painless firing. Uh, one stunt double for Arnold. Dan hurt his knee. I think we were pretty lucky. Um, didn't hurt anybody on in this sequence. They built the 40-millimeter grenade launcher, the six-gun arrangement. To some extent, it was a notion that you could develop character or label the guys or the audience would start to know who they were if, the, if some of them had distinctive weapons. But the weapons themselves were, uh, were unique to the man. Sven is a... An old friend of Arnold's. I worked with him several times. I put him in Red October later on. He was he was in there a minute ago as the uh, the the bad Russian who shot the prisoner. Get that load. Eventually, Jesse was able to aim the thing, but it it took a while. It takes a man as big as him just to pick it up. Which is why I never fired the thing, because I mean, Jesse outweighs me by 75 or 100 pounds or something. He eventually got pretty good with it. He could sling it around and pretend that he was blasting whatever. I mean, he could pretend like it was his six-gun or something, but it took a while for him to get there. Now we get into the stuff that I shot in. It's the first time they let me do anything that had to do with guns. To do to do uh, a shot with an old painless, or at least to show the the aftermath of old painless takes hours and hours and hundreds of setting up hundreds of squid heads and things. Uh, so it's not something one wants to do multiple takes on. That's really you do a take, and if you ask him how long to take two, he says tomorrow. <laughs> There was certainly a lot of, you know, kidding around about, you know, fine signature lines for Arnold and stuff. Uh, the knock knock is obviously out of one of the old cartoons. It's, it's out of uh, 
a Roadrunner cartoon or something. The stick around that happens just before that came from... There was somebody in the... Mm, trying to sell stuff to the studio as a knife maker. And, and I had a special knife that blah, 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 blah. And I wasn't real impressed with that, but I said, could you make us a machete, which has to do with the jungle? So he made this thing that basically looks like a Thracian short sword, but what the hell, it's Arnold's, uh, Arnold's machete. He gave it to me at the end, I still got it. Um, and uh, the one-liner came from that, the, the stick around came from, came out of looking at the machete. It was also the way to let him get rid of it. Because otherwise you'd have to carry the damn thing for the whole movie. And it weighed about 20 pounds. It was not a very effective thing as a machete. Goddamn jackpot. This is more than we ever thought we'd get. Yeah, we got those bastards. We got them. I think this is what you're looking for. You sell some! It's all bullshit. All of it. The cabinet minister, the whole business. Got us in here to do your dirty work. Look, we just stopped a major invasion. In three days, they'd have been across the border with this stuff. Why us? Because nobody else could have pulled it off. Now, this sequence was really what Carl was for. And now that... Carl's strength is what allows Arnold to be plausible here. He'd never done a face-to-face -face shouting match with somebody else where you actually believed him, where you didn't say, oh, you know, he's a, he's a bodybuilder with a great, charming manner, but you actually said, you know, no, he's the character in the, in the movie. Um, and Carl had a lot to do with it. And also part of what I was trying to do here, and, and Carl was doing it too, but um, I didn't want Carl, Carl was written as the bad guy, completely just bad, bad, bad guy in the script, and, and I wanted to turn him around and just say he was a good guy who had a different agenda, and it turns out his agenda was wrong so that he'd made a mistake and he felt bad about it. Uh, I, wanted, I wanted to put in redemption for him so they could still fight, but in the end, they respected each other. Your baggage. You fall behind and you're on your own. Place is too hot for a pickup. They won't touch us till we get over the border. Hey, Billy. Give me a way out of this hole. Ariel says we are cut off. The only way out of here is that valley that leads to the east. I wouldn't wish that on the broke dig dog. Not much choice. That shot was a was a dolly with a 180 degree pan in it, which you couldn't at the time get an American cameraman to do. It's just terrible trouble. But because Don McAlpine was Australian and they had a much looser style. Um, I could get him to do a lot. And he loved doing it. Yeah, like this is another dolly move. Watch this one. 
There's um, a dolly and a sink in two. Well, it's two dolly moves. One from each direction. Why? Yes, it was a real scorpion. Thanks. This was a creature which was indeed hurt for this production. But there was only one. Billy! Billy! The other day, I was going down to my girlfriend. I said to her, Chase, you got a big This pussy. joke is Shane's joke. Entirely Shane's joke. Shane didn't write in an official way, but he wrote in an unofficial way, like the the joke, the pussy joke. He was just there and he would come up with stuff. Now, the heat vision here, when we first did the heat vision, they had a real heat vision uh, from the, the um, folks in New York City who did the effects stuff. And it was this enormous thing with the umbilical that was six inches thick and it would, could only get maybe four feet from the truck and it really would see someone based on temperature but there was this little tiny problem which was the ambient temperature in Mexico was in the 90s consequently <laughs> people were the same temperatures as the background and they were perfectly camouflaged so, in order to deal with that, the splendid folks in the special effect field said, well, there's no problem. We'll put ice water on the jungle, and we'll have the actors stand next to a fire just before the, the, the uh, shot. So they literally were doing that, and they spent about, I don't know, a week getting one shot, or maybe two shots. Uh, and it was just a nightmare. It cost a f every shot cost a fortune. So finally, I went off to a video special effects house. They did commercials and things. And I sat down for about three hours. We had to do this in secret. Uh, one of the studio um, studio post-production guy set it up for me. Uh, and we did it behind the back of all the executives and stuff. Um, and the producers. Um, this, right here, was the first shot I shot in the movie. Big long dolly shot that took forever. It was silly. But it's spooky looking. But we had to build every bloody leaf in any case I went off to a video post-production house that did, normally did commercials and uh, uh, I took the film and I had him regular film and I had him turn it to a negative and then we made it all blue and then isolate certain areas and attach false color to it and we created most of the special effects most of the heat effect shots that way. Um, 
It was a budget issue, but it was also just, it was nearly impossible to get the, the real heat vision shots. At the beginning of the movie, in order to create some sense of, well, one, how you walk around like you're actually in the military or know what you're doing, um, but also to create some sense of a, of a unit, of a group, uh, like they knew each other, when they looked at each other, they had some history. Um, I had this military advisor guy again, some studio deal. Um, and instead of standing around advising me on what military stuff was about, instead I had him run boot camp for the actors and, and, uh, do these, you know, marches over a hunk of Mexican backcountry, you know, take him out on these four hour hikes and things. Um, and it did a lot of good. They uh, they actually started behaving as if they knew each other, as if they might have been from a unit. Nilo <laughs> Elpidia Carrera, I think, came in after. I'm not sure if she was in the... We didn't send her to boot camp. Try it again. There was a certain amount of, of uh, friendly competition between the actors, and uh, Arnold tends to to create that, create a, a boys' club and a boys' gym sort of feeling. And uh, see, these these maneuvers is where, are what they they learn to do uh, from the uh, the military advisor. So, the, yeah, the guys were going to the gym like crazy. And, uh, um, oh, they were competing about everything. They were competing about how many cigars they could smoke. They were just competing. Um, in an odd way. You know, Carl had his own way of competing because he was the most professional of the actors, the most experienced. So, and, Arnold would come around at times and just watch, you know, when Carl was working, when Arnold wasn't. But Arnold was quietly, you know, watching and learning. Obviously, Arnold in this looks a little like the cartoon character Sergeant Rock. And it was something he was talking about doing at the time. And, uh, and it sort of... That was, in the end of the movie, we did a joke with Shane Black reading a Sergeant Rock comic, uh, comic book. But, 
Yeah, of course. Look at him. He looks like Sergeant Rock. The, in effect, rehearsals we had at the military, to the boot camp we had helped. It, it helped not just on camera, it probably helped off camera too, because it, it did make them friends, did make them feel like they were part of a unit, and uh, we probably had far fewer morale problems. Than, I mean, you get a bunch of actors together, <laughs> like Sonny Landrum in particular, uh, you can have you can have a a crazy time, and we actually had a very easy time. These shots with the with the predator were our, our shoot was divided into um, Puerto Vallarta and then later in Palenque because the, the the first predator arrived in Puerto Vallarta and it was ludicrous looking uh, and we had to had to uh, kind of regroup and it also gave me the chance to go move the production to uh, to someplace where I could get some actual jungle. But these shots were... Uh, these early shots of the Predator, I'm not sure where we did them. Actually, I think they were done in Los Angeles. We had, in order to get the Predator, we had to, in effect, make a hole in the jungle, a hole in the background. And so what they did is they dressed a man in a red suit. And I was desperate to try to get him to swing through the trees or do something that didn't just look like you know, James Arness in the thing stalking around, stiff-knit-legged. And, and I got some stuff. I had them build this enormous bungee rig, which actually we got a couple of shots out of. Um, I did some other things to get the guy looking semi-mobile in the trees. What I really wanted was a monkey. So I had to make a a red suit for a poor monkey. And the problem was the monkey, once we got the red suit on him, 
that would separate him from the background and they could make the effect out of The problem was the monkey was so embarrassed by the red suit that he hid. He'd go up in the tree and he'd cower. And he wouldn't do what monkeys do. He wouldn't go from tree to tree or do anything because he's too damn embarrassed by the red suit. Um, that was one of the back-to-the-drawing-board parts in this. The only uh, image of an alien life form that had captured the imagination or looked uh, halfway plausible or functional was the stuff that came from the H.R. Giger uh, illustrations that became Alien. And uh, one of those images of the ultimately terrifying other life uh, only shows up once in a generation or more. You're not just going to you know, hire some uh, cartoonist and say, um, come up with the next H.R. Giger, because H.R. Giger only comes along, as I said, once in a generation. Um, and, and I didn't see how you could do anything associated with it without just being a derivative also ran. And frankly, um, having seen what they did in the sequel, that's exactly what I thought. I thought it was, thought it was best that they didn't shoot it. Here you see Jesse actually carrying Painless. He had no ammunition at this point. That's why he could carry it. And there's obviously no battery connection. It, just, it, wouldn't, it wasn't operable that way. We shot this in Palenque, where we could get a real snake. The worry was that Painless would buck and get away from him and spin. Even if you had everybody clear out in front for 50 feet, that the man firing it might not be able to control it. Um, and that he could wind up in the way of all of this wadding and bits of brass and stuff that was flying out of the front end of it. Um, so the first time they fired it, they did a lot of they anchored it and yet tried to give him a chance to figure out if he could control it. So it was like bungee cords and things. So that if it started to get out of control, they could yank it in and protect him. But to let him see, you know, what are the, you know what are the concussive forces? Is the you know what happens when the thing starts spinning? We learned all that there was enough gyroscopic force in the spinning of the cylinder that it kept it online. That it actually was very difficult to move it around or aim it, and that in an odd way it was very safe. You couldn't have it wind up aiming where you didn't want it because it wouldn't move uh, because, of the, because of all the, the, the gyroscopic force and the spin. But it took us a while of experimenting with it, and I think he first tried it out over on the, when it, with the second unit, and it was like half a day. You know, we kept hearing reports of, they're going to fire painless in, in 45 minutes. Well, no, they've had it. It's like a countdown to the moon launch or something. They're going to fire painless. And I think later that afternoon it fired, and we, we were about a mile up the valley. Or we could hear it. Uh, and it sounds like it's the loudest buzzsaw in the world. Some people, I guess, were concerned about the, the, how impractical it was, but the notion was that it was that painless was a. Look, it's a movie prop. 
you know, he never would have used it, but it's a lot of fun to watch. Now, here we get Bill Duke to fire painless. You notice he's not walking while he does this. Now, this particular sequence, I made, when I first went to work on this project, I had the feeling that people had a, a sort of perverse fascination with pictures of guns firing. Literally almost a pornographic desire. Um, and I said to myself, okay, if you want pictures of guns firing, um, I'll give you pictures of guns firing. So I created this sequence where they take all of their guns and they blaze away continually for five minutes flat. And they flatten the jungle and they mow down everything. Um, and what I was really doing was sort of the Australian phrase is to take the piss out of or to, to quietly ridicule the, the desire to see pictures of guns firing. Um, now, part of, I mean, all of this is, yep, yeah, the sort of moral separate piece here. In order to do it, I set up a circumstance where there are no human beings in front of the guns. Uh, where, in fact, the point of all the firing was, as the man says, as soon as they stop shooting, we hit nothing. The whole point was the impotence of all of the guns. Um, which was just exactly the opposite of what I believed I was being hired to sell. Um, studios really are a bit disingenuous in there. Um, this movie and some of the ones that followed it really were... Um, did carry a pornographic desire to market images of gunfire. Uh, it was in the corporate purpose. Um, and this was... Mm, I wanted the job. So this was my compromise for that. I, I gave them all the gunfire they could possibly desire. Um, and at the same time, I didn't really advertise to little kids how wonderful guns are. Or at least I thought I wasn't. Um, now, I did the same thing in the next movie. Um, I created a, a, a scene in Die Hard where they blaze away and you get five minutes of guns firing and all they're doing is shooting at glass. Again, the point was they're not shooting at people. Um, now, some of the people involved in this movie have since put that same sequence in just about every movie they make. Every movie they're involved in. With subtle differences. They sort of forget to take the people out of in front of the guns. Uh, so you get a sequence where they blaze away for five minutes, killing people or images of people. Um, and then 
you know, completely act uh, utterly innocent and and uh, and puzzled when uh, something like Columbine happens. While I was temp tracking the movie, we used some Aaron Copeland. I guess I've since learned that the name of the piece is Fanfare for the Common Man. Um, it just it just got introduced there, and uh, Alan Silvestri later on parodied it beautifully, and we we uh, it's playing in the background here. Back. In the cutting room, we called it Fanfare for the Common Mercenary. The concept of the blood, I think, was originally orange so that it would show up in the in the jungle, so it would stick out um, against the green. But it turned to be turned out to be very hard to get to do. And uh, one of the effects guys came up with this glowing liquid, um, you know, tubes of glow tubes, um, and we would just cut them open and pour them out on things, and they they it looked weird and it glowed and it took much less optical work um so that's how this stuff wound up at, you know it's a it's a common children's toy uh, and that's why the predator's blood is green instead of orange the um the tools that the predator used there are actually pretty common veterinary medical tools we made up a little medical kit. One of the whole hard problems was to have things that appeared to be alien, and yet you could sort of tell what they were about um, without having them look like they were out of a, you know, a Star Trek television show or something. Sergeant. 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 Who get us today? Bill Duke is a fabulous actor. I love working with him. Now, I believe he had done... He went to AFI about two years after I did. And then he did American Gigolo. I thought it was just an incredible performance. Hair-raising performance. And, uh, and that's how I got him in this. Bill, in particular, is good about you know, developing a scene because because 
particularly when it's basically mechanics or something. It's it's. Um, I often try to leave leave actors the room to to uh, to develop characters on their own, uh, the, to be able to shape it and actually give the character a personality, which means you have to give them some. Verbal license. You can't make them exactly say what the words are in the screenplay. Uh, the screenplay becomes a, a blueprint, and uh, and if the actors are good, they'll take the blueprint and play with it and improve on it. Uh, and people like Bill are just wonderful for that. I seem to always get caught with this stuff where I've got people speaking another language back and forth, but. It's odd. I think actually where it came from was spending so much time watching foreign movies and I would never read the subtitles. And I really didn't care what people said. And I still don't. I get myself in so much trouble with it because I don't pay attention to what people say. I don't pay attention to what they say on, on screen. Um, I pay attention to what they look like when they say it and how it sounds. Um... Which, you know, is sort of part of this notion I've got that mm, movies are really music. They're not plays. They're not photographed plays. They're, it's a it's completely separate idea. And that it's, it's much closer to music than it is to, to the theater. Um, so I guess that's why I, I often have people speaking in a foreign language is because... If then the audience just hears how they say something instead of what they say. This was not incidentally, even though there was a real scorpion earlier, that pig was so unreal, are you kidding? Where's the girl? Why didn't she try to get away? Look at her. She's scared out of her mind. Major, you better take a look at this. Blaine's body, it's gone. Came in through the tripwires. Took it right out from under our noses. A lot of folks, this was the first time I'd worked in Mexico, obviously, and and a lot of the people in the film got sick. Um, I didn't get sick, but I also, in an effort not to get sick, just didn't eat. And I lost 25 pounds on the movie. The, the line producer lost nearly 40. Um, he did get sick. He had a real tough time. 
Um, Arnold got sick. One of the bad stuff is when we were in Puerto Vallarta and, you know, they'd go into town and eat street food. And Arnold went to some restaurant that we hadn't checked out. And he wound up playing a scene with an IV bottle in his arm once because he was, he was so dehydrated from the diarrhea. It was some stuff early in the movie. Although you'll notice as the movie goes on that Arnold loses weight. Um, he gets noticeably drawn in the face. Um, and it's not from being sick, it's ultimately from um, precautions for not being sick. You see, like this shot right here, he's very slender. Um, it, it came from precautions for not being sick, so he'd wind up not eating. I mean, I've since worked in Mexico again and learned how to do it. You just have to take over a restaurant and... and um, no, Middle-class Mexicans don't get sick. They're, Montezuma's revenge is nonsense. It's just... Um, it's just restaurants that, that cater to tourists. It is, in a way, a revenge. There's a movie with John called The Horsehold. It's a John Ford movie uh, with um, John Wayne and William Holden. And they hate each other all through the movie. Uh, Holden calls Wayne section hand and, um, and um, Wayne calls, calls Holden what, uh, bone cutter or something. And they just insult each other constantly. They fight all through the movie. And at the climax of the movie, one of them says to the other, strip your blouse, meaning let's go outside and have a punch-up. Um, and they do. They have a fist fight right at the climax of the movie. It's wonderful. And in the end, they obviously they've respected each other. They actually respect each other. And it was a, there was a wonderful sort of redemption feeling at the end of the movie or, or at the end of the climax after they, they start to have this fist fight. They get interrupted obviously in a fist fight and it never gets resolved. You can't ever have that that fist fight resolved. They got interrupted by the Confederate army attacking. Um, but anyway, I was looking for that sort of relationship which is why I turned Carl's character around and instead of making him just the bad, bad, bad CIA guy, instead made him um, a good guy who had a different set of instructions that turned out to be wrong and, as a consequence, got a lot of people hurt. And he was, he was more upset about it than anybody. So that um, he and Arnold could fight the way they do there but ultimately they could respect each other. This shaving scene, we were talking about Bill Duke, how he's good with improvisation. He asked to use the razor as part of something that had to do with his character. And I said, sure, of course. 
And I think somehow out of the discussion, whether he came up with it or I came up with it, the notion would be that he'd, he's got to cut himself and break the razor. When I was little, we found a man. He looked like, like a butcher. The old women in the village crossed themselves and whispered crazy things, strange things. El diablo cazador de hombres. Only in the hottest years this happens. And this year it grows hot. We begin finding our man. We found them sometimes without their skin, and sometimes much, much worse. El que hace trofeos de los hombres means the demon who makes trophies of man. the second time we went down. We didn't need to make up the jungle. So you didn't have an art department. Um, you know, we work with local, uh, local materials, and actually most of the work was done by local people. Um, and we built this giant tree that's at the end of the movie. Uh, and it's built with a, uh, it's built out of mo local materials. It's actually, it's built out of concrete. There's probably more time spent in Puerto Vallarta in terms of overall shooting days, but in terms of what's in the movie, it's probably half and half. This is the sequence. You notice Arnold's skin's a little green here? This is the sequence that, that really looked like the New Hampshire woods in November. We twisted it like crazy in the printing to try to make it look green. Yeah, now these these shots of the predator, the actual movement of the predator, I did much later. Um, in order to get it, make it look like he was like he was mobile in the trees. Uh, I told you I, I had a this wild bungee rig made in order to get an athletic a predator that I, I thought could move. Get your people the hell out of here. You can't win this, Dylan. Maybe I can get even. Dylan! Just hold on to that damn 
chopper. He's busted up pretty bad, Major. I can make it. I can make it. Get the radio. Forget the rest. Feels great in this stuff. He's just so spooky. He's got such a spooky concentration. And of course, these poor guys were working against nothing. There was just nothing there. There was no predator. Um, in fact, the pieces of the by, by about now they had seen the predator come out of the box, and they knew it was ridiculous looking. So, and we had we were just saying, well, we're going to fix it. Uh, so they were they were completely working on air. Oh, we described all sorts of stuff, but but it was all talk because we weren't really sure what we were going to do. <laughs> the first several attempts to do the, the camouflage effect just didn't work at all until they realized they needed to make flaws in it. They needed to have it repeat itself, and they created a, a sort of illusion of three-dimensionality or roundness by having it repeat itself.
terms of the rating, I think we had the, the normal sort of negotiating from the MPAA about take a few frames off this and a few frames off that. Uh, we didn't kill, we didn't have like the Bill Duke's death until the very end. Uh, we had the shots leading up to it, but we, we didn't actually have the, the big splat until quite late. No sport. There are a number of scenes in the sequel that were things I campaigned like crazy not to have in this movie, like the journey inside the spaceship to see the various preserved bits of stuffed humans and things, which was just yorky. I tried to throw all sorts of handicaps in the way because I thought it was just a yucky notion. I didn't think one could ever do it successfully, that it would be silly looking and repulsive. Because this was my first studio feature, um, I had I, I had a limited amount of uh, a short leash on how much I could change the screenplay. But the uh, I wrote this sequence, which they used Arnold remembered and used later on. I, I wrote this sequence where I wanted them to, instead of going in by helicopter, I wanted them to go in in a high-low jump, which, uh, which is a um, to go in in an airplane that where the back end opens up and, and you jump out. Um, and I found a, a small version of a C-130 that could plausibly land and take off from an aircraft carrier. And the notion was that they went in over the the uh, Andes and got jumped by a Peruvian MiG, uh, and and uh, the pilot wanted to scrub the mission because they were lost. And uh, Arnold instead held the gun on the pilot and said, "No, we're going ahead with it now. Open a goddamn back door." And so the pilot does. He opens the back door, and the, and the team all jumps out. And Arnold, who doesn't have a parachute on, says, see you to the pilot, and starts running the length of the airplane. And as he goes down the length of the airplane, he grabs a parachute off the wall and keeps running straight off the back ramp of the airplane and dives off, and he's still, you know, the plane's flying at 200 feet or something, and he's got the parachute in his hand. Now, it turned out that... They used it later. It's an eraser, but I wrote it for Predator and they wouldn't let me shoot it. So <clears throat> that relates to why there was a big worry about the budget and the spaceship, because I couldn't simply say, get the fucking spaceship out of the movie. I instead had to work on budget and, and misdirection and stuff like that. It's unfortunate when I have to do that stuff. There's another one of those goofy machetes.
when when we had a the new suit, the new predator from Stan Winston, he brought in a kid named Kevin Peter Hall. He's dead now. We knew we had to rework things the moment that the original Predator came out of the box. It was clearly ridiculous. the only shot where anybody got hurt in the movie. That shot right there. The guy threw his knee out. Turned out after the fact, I mean, I found out after I got back to the States that I'd broken my wrist uh, and that I just worked through it. Yeah, I fell out of a tree. <laughs> I was too embarrassed to admit I was hurt. This sequence here in the in the dusk we shot over the course of a week in order to uh, to get enough shots in actual dusk. was a trooper about the mud. The mud was disgusting. After the first day of working in it, it stank. Something terrible. But he was great about it. It's like every day for a week at about 4.30, we would break and start doing this scene to get in the right light because it's actually all outside and it's really next to this waterfall I'm pulling.
Arnold loves physical difficulties, and so he bellied right up to it and, and you know, went for it. But it was, it was clearly no fun. <laughs> he, uh, see, what you don't know is that the mud is continually evaporating, so it's cold. Um, and he'd wind up just chilled. And you'd have to spend hours that way. Here is my bungee rig. He actually is running. There's more of the shot there, but we actually... Because the suit weighed 200 pounds or more. And the man was 7 feet 6 inches tall. He wasn't... He could barely move on his own, let alone put the 200 pounds of suit on him. Um, he really did look like, when he moved, he looked like the Michelin man. Uh, so we had, to, we had to do a lot of work to try to create an impression of how he, how he looked, or how he might move. And that, that one shot of him running, he has... Um, uh, this enormous, it's like four, 400 foot long strands of bungee cord on him, lifting the weight of the suit so that he can jump from rock to rock. Now this sequence was not in the original script. Um, we made it up after we went back to Los Angeles and edited the rest of the movie. of uh, Sonny Landrum being turned into a, a trophy was the closest I could get to the trip onto the uh, onto the spaceship where you look at all the stuffed team members, which I just thought was so yucky. Um, and uh, so I made up that in an attempt to do it by suggestion literally seeing things.
I cut the movie and then and filled in, got a bunch of storyboards done for the pieces that were missing. Uh, and we showed uh, Leonard Goldberg, who was the new head of the studio. Uh, we showed him the movie, and he liked it. And uh, said, okay, let's do this. Uh, he was quite supportive about it. I never used storyboards. I mean, they had storyboards out the kazoo for the uh, for the original monster. Didn't do them any good. Um, you storyboard scenes that have to be uh, special effect opticals. But none of these were storyboarded. This was made up out of the location. Um, the reason you have to storyboard opticals is that optical companies always raise the price after you're in the middle. So uh, you have all these famous cost overruns where uh, uh, you know, a movie starts out to cost $40 million and before it's finished it costs 120 or some nightmare like that. Um, so that you storyboard the the effect shots, um, and even then you very seldom actually use them. I mean, you, it, it's a matter of documenting what is it that the effects company is supposed to do. Um, the storyboards I did some storyboards on the ending of the, of the movie, part of the movie that wasn't shot. None of this stuff was, this is all Palenque later. Um, wasn't even written, actually. Um, the uh, I storyboarded these things and storyboarded the various things that were missing all the way through. Right there, now, that's a gymnast actually swinging in a gymnasium in Los Angeles in a red suit and then placed into a uh, placed into a shot of the jungle Joel Hynek was the one who was really responsible for the camouflage effect. I mean, the main thing he had to do was come up with the, you see, the, the repeating image within an image within an image within an image. And until they discovered that, the camouflage effect looked dreadful. It looked like a silly cutout in the film. It didn't work at all. Joel is really, Joel Hynek is really splendid. He's, I've worked with him several times since, and he did the effects in, in Matrix. He came up with the, uh, 
slow motion jumping through the air stuff. hired Stan Winston, he, the first thing he did is looked at all the pieces we had and all the drawings we had, and then he went to work for a week or two drawing on his own. There is our concrete tree, uh, done by a crew of about 50 peonies over a two-week course. Um, Stan went to work on his own, came up with a whole Rastafarian hairdo, and, uh, and the, the, the external set of jaws that, that the creature has. I, I didn't, did not want and would not have countenanced um, a racial suggestion as to what the what the predator looked like. Um, yes, those are sort of dreadlocks, but but uh, there was no notion that people should somehow think he seems African. I mean, everything that that uh, Stan came up with, the prince producers were thrilled with, because it looks so much better than anything else we've had up, had up to that point. Larry Gordon was running Fox at the time, and I had this long sort of presentation meeting where he had to go sniff me out and decide whether he wanted to trust me or something. It scared the hell out of me. I'd never been through that sort of experience. Um, in fact, he was probably, I think at the time, the first studio head I have ever met. I mean, I've since learned that he's a goddamn sweetheart, but <laughs> I didn't know that at the time. Boy, he scared me. He also had the production company. See, he had, from the time he started the movie, he got promoted to head of Fox. And so he was kind of in two hats. While we were doing Die Hard the following year, sort of the reverse happened. Uh, he got replaced as the head of Fox, but he was still the producer of the movie that we were working on. And, uh, so he'd like, Larry kept moving offices. You'd never know where to find Larry because he started a production company and then he wound up in the head of the administrative offices. And then before you knew it, he was sent back down to his old office. I've been asked if there's a conflict of interest between a, you know, a producer becoming the head of the studio or whatever, but actually, Lord, no. I mean, now that I know how, what it's like for the head of a studio, they're desperate to get movies desperate to get movies that work. And it's hard to believe, really, that a... Eh, I've seen some guys who would do that, but most of them 
they want a movie that works. They're far more concerned about that than, um, you know, can they feed their own deal into something. It's just, Larry isn't like that. He, uh, Larry Gordon is actually one of uh, Hollywood's good guys. And he doesn't cheat that way. He doesn't need to. He's got real stuff and he's got, does real work. Maybe I should put it another way. Larry Gordon's one of the few people in Hollywood where, who could who could wear both hats, both be the producer and be the head of the studio. And you'd actually believe that his head of the studio hat would give his producer hat a hard time. Larry is straight enough that he, he would fire himself, probably. <laughs> took me a while to get this cut is so that it, it it's simply sustained and it's relatively simple um, and there are shots that that sustain for quite a while rather than constantly jumping back and forth and part of what My personal desire in movies is that they actually have a geography and that they be time continuous and and they have some sense of reality. Uh, and in order to do that, you can't constantly jump around with a cut. Uh, sometimes you have to leave it alone. Sometimes you have to not call attention to the editing because calling attention to the editing does by definition um, separate the audience they put the space helmet on him so that and the suggestion they needed to breathe something else in order to not have to operate the uh, the external jaws and, and all the stuff of the face because operating the face took I don't know, eight or ten technicians it was like this whole row of kids with model airplane controllers you know and each one had one eyebrow muscle or something it was it was uh an enormously complicated little piece of machinery, or big piece of machinery. You're one ugly motherfucker. Ah, now, you see all this stuff with the, the fangs and things? That was an enormous operation to make his mouth do all of that stuff. Bad idea. Stan had a whole raft of his, his merry men, as I said, all with air, model airplane controllers. Each one of them had one of the jaws.
That was a funny little gimmick. I think Stan came up with that. Or the, the notion that... What is this, boxing? <laughs> now, most of this sequence, see, we didn't really shoot. This is made up on a stage in Los Angeles. And most of it's in predator vision, because you can't tell where it is. Now this, this shot is actually back in Palenque. And it's real jungle and it's real stuff. We didn't have to make it up. Um, Don McAlpine just put a wonderful great big light out on the backside of it and you can see the whole thing. It looks enormous. The, the monster suit was physically really difficult, and, and I think they found these um, race car suit cooling systems, race car driver cooling systems. It's a, it's a vest with cold water that runs through it. So. And with that, he could stay in the suit for maybe two hours or so. But it probably took four or five hours to get him into it. He could, he could survive in it for two hours, and then it would take him four or five hours to get him out of it. So he'd go through an exhausting day, and almost all of it was just getting put together. Which is why we had to make I had to make him like the helicopter pilot in the, other, in, in the end. So he had a chance to show up on the movie on his own. Difficulty ever having the audience understand that he had set off a nuclear bomb. It was just no problem. And it's a fairly complex idea when you think about it. And they got it instantly. 
This was all supposed to be in the spaceship. Uh, I transposed it here. This came from the dream I had when I was like in high school or something. I had this dream of working in Los Alamos in, in the spring of 1945. And they had this new bomb, and it was up on the tower, and it didn't go off. So we got it down off the thing and took it into the lab and started taking it apart. And I remember all the people from the, the, the pictures of Teller and those, the people from the... There's Kevin Peter Hall right there. And they were disassembling the bomb, and then one of them said, Uh-oh. And they all looked at each other like, Uh, well, goodbye. And in my dream, I started to run. As I started out the door, Edward Teller spoke up to me, and he said, John. I said, yeah. He said, you all run real good now. And I started running, and the whole dream was just trying to outrun an atom bomb that was supposed to go off in, I don't know, some, some certain number of seconds or minutes. Um... And in the dream, I lived through it. And that's where I stuck this in, stuck it in here. Here we have the fanfare for the common mercenary. We didn't burn a hole in anything. No, we went and found a location that had been burned probably two years before, three years before, something like that. And um, we cleaned out a few low bushes uh, and just used it as it was. And we did a lot of, uh, we spray painted a lot of things black. The local folks burn holes in everything much faster than, they don't need us to do it. kind of thing of doing a curtain call of letting them all be because it's such a downer with Arnold going off on his own I wanted to get the bunch back alive you know and in the like the dirty dozen and things they always have the guys show up you know superimposed on the sky or something as giant ghosts and instead I just said look let's do it because I came out of theater so I just said look I'm going to do a curtain call we just have the guys. You, you know where I stole this? Robert Altman. It's in a movie called Brewster McCloud. And I just borrowed the same idea. It's a great gimmick. You know, you know having, having all the, the fallen heroes show up on the sky just seemed... Hmm, I don't know. Too fascist somehow. Too militaristically nonsensical. And instead it just... Lighten the whole thing up and have people smile and say hi into the camera felt. Because what I was trying to do was to sort of leave a sense of the movie that, you know, we had all had a good time making this. We hope you had a good time watching it. It's been remembered well since and, and it did fine. But it, It didn't, for instance, take the opening weekend or anything like that. It wasn't an instant. Uh, 
overwhelming success or anything. No one, no one thought this was Jaws. And it's, it's nice to tell people that it's, that it's remembered since, uh, but it wasn't at the time a sensation or anything like that. It's got some nice stuff in it, some stuff I like. Um, it has a... It has a w wonderful sort of childish suspension of disbelief. It just goes for it. Uh, and that's a lot of fun. I like that. Right. I see the difference in the the tone of the writing and the filmmaking between the early stuff and the later stuff. Um, personally, I like the later stuff. It would have been nice um, to be able to do the early stuff that way, but what the hell? You have to get a chance. And, and it was only because I got through the early stuff well enough that studio saw it and, you know, that I, that I got the chance to make the rest of it. 